So we have now concluded our time in Lamentations and the Psalms of Lament. And for this summer months, we're going to be looking at Psalms. And we're going we're gonna to be dedicating the summer to, to that endeavor. And it's been our tradition or my tradition in the time I've been here in the summer months to, to take that little bit of a step back and just to, to enjoy what the Psalms are and, and what they provide for us. And this morning, I, I have lots of favorite Psalms, but there's probably two that stick into my mind that are kind of my favorite. Psalm 121 may be some of my favorites in all of Scripture, but Psalm 8 is, is right up there with them. So I hope that you find as much joy and much majesty in these few verses as what I do and what I have over the years. So if you're able, please rise as we read this wonderful psalm, the Psalm of David, Psalm 8. Hear the reading of God's Word, and following the reading of God's Word, we'll say together, thanks be to God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for Him. Yet you have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and honor. You have given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. So far, the reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. The grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but the Word of the Lord stands firm and true forever. And so, Lord, we do indeed give You thanks. Holy Spirit, take this Word, Your Word, penetrate our hearts, mold us, shape us, make us more like Christ. It's in His name, His strong name, the name of Jesus, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When I was a boy, I remember very clearly a a nightly ritual that I had for some time. I I do not recall how long the ritual uh, went, but I know that it was for a number of days, weeks, perhaps months or even years. But I remember it very clearly. I don't even remember how old I was necessarily, but it occurred every night. The ritual was this. I remember that I had gotten on my pajamas, right? I I brushed my teeth. I did all the things that kids are supposed to do. Kids, if you're not brushing your teeth and putting on your pajamas, please do that. But I did these things. And then I would read a couple books. And then there was a time when, okay, it's just time to go to sleep. And what do you do, right? You go over to the light switch and you flip the light to turn off the light. Here's my ritual. I was determined. I was determined every single night to accomplish one thing and one thing only as I went to bed. As I flipped off the switch, my goal was to get into bed before the light went out. I'm telling you, you can laugh all you want, but every night I was determined. With each passing night, the determination increased and increased. Tonight's the night. I'm going to do it. Right? 
I tried to get into bed before the light went out. Each night I was spoiled, as you laugh and recognize, right? A foolish endeavor I had, but I was determined. And when I was young, I would have sworn to you that I was really close on a couple nights. I tell you, I was. I was crazy fast. But I didn't know then what I know now. What I know now and what I didn't know then was that light travels at 186,000 miles per second. I was stupid fast, but not quite that fast. Permit me to indulge you a bit more, if you will. Perhaps 186,000 miles per second doesn't quite compute in our brains. What does that look like? I can't quite fathom what that is. So let's do it this way. So you're gazing at the moon, and everything is dark, right? And if someone's on the moon, and they they turn on this really huge light on the surface of the moon, it would take 1.25 seconds for that light from the moon to reach your eyes. So the moral of the story is, even if the light switch was on the moon, I probably still couldn't make it into my bed. Or perhaps this. Did you know that if you were riding in Han Solo's Millennium Falcon at light speed, 186,000 miles per hour... It would take you 1.3 years to reach Saturn. Long time. Or, if you were traveling at light speed, 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 200,000 years to get to the end of the Milky Way galaxy. Or, the next closest galaxy, Andromeda, it would take you 2.5 million years to reach Saturn. Andromeda, at 186,000 miles per second. Or, to reach the furthest galaxy in the known universe that we in our feeble technology can see, which is a galaxy called GN-Z11. I don't expect you to remember that, but that's what it's called. It would take you, hang on, at 186,000 miles per second. Before I give you the answer, just think of a number in your brain, and don't shout it out, but just think of a number that you might... Fathom might be the length of time it takes to get to GNZ11. I see some of you whispering to each other. Just, just, what do you think? Try this number on for size. It would take you 31.96 billion years to get to the furthest known galaxy in the universe that we know right now. Traveling at light speed, 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 31.96 billion years to reach the furthest known galaxy in our universe. Then we come to Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David, the author of this psalm, most likely, gazing up into the heavens and seeing the stars, in ways that we don't really see anymore, for there wasn't a whole lot of light pollution back then, I wouldn't think. So he was able to see the heavens and seeing the galaxy for the, what it was, and he looks upon the majesty of the Lord, and here he uses two terms of the, for the Lord. The first one, he says, O Lord, right? And the second one, Our Lord. The first Lord there, maybe perhaps in your Bibles, it's all in caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When we see that in the scriptures, usually that means it's saying Yahweh, right? The, the, the inutterable name for God 
that the people of Israel use. They do not dare utter those words from their mouths. And so here David is saying, O Yahweh, the God I am who I am, the one who took us up out of Egypt, the one who saved us from bondage and slavery, the creator of the universe, O Lord. And then he says, our Lord, and he uses the word Adonai, which still holds a great deal of respect and honor, but not not to the same sense as Yahweh, but Adonai is a more personal, relational type of title. So he's acknowledging the sovereignty and the greatness and the goodness and the immensity of, of Yahweh. And he's also saying, Adonai, the one who knows us. He gazes and he says, how majestic is your name. He hearkens to the very creative nature of the Lord as Yahweh, as Adonai, acknowledging for who he is. David didn't know the speed of light. He didn't know 186,000 miles per second. He did not know that GNZ 11 is 31.9 billion years away. And yet he marvels. He gazes up at the skies and he marvels at the majesty of the Lord. And he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Friends, this morning, I want you to attempt to try to grasp something. I want us to try to grasp 31.9 billion years. I can't. And this is the furthest that we know. For there is more out there. There's, there's more to the universe than GNZ 11. In our limited technology, we were only able to gaze to that border, to that border of the expanse of the universe, and yet we know that it continues on and on and on and on. And then David says, you have set your glory above the heavens, above 31.9 billion years. As a matter of fact, as we see in Psalm 147, the Lord not only is above the universe, but He determines the number. He determines the number of stars. He determines the number of galaxies. He determines the distance between the stars. He determines each and every star and where it hangs. And then not only does He give them numbers, but the psalmist says he knows them by name. Chances are he doesn't call it GNZ11. But he calls them by name. He numbers them. He named them. Yahweh has determined the infinite and beyond the infinite and gives names and numbers to the infinite and beyond the infinite. The Lord attends to the expanse of the universe. He attends to the expanse of the infinite where each star is numbered and named. This, my friends, is the majesty of Yahweh Adonai. This is the God that is worthy of our praise. This is the God that, as Luke says in his, in his book in chapter 12, that not only has he numbered the stars in the sky, but he has numbered the hairs on your head. He attends to you in the same way he attends to the universe. And this is the juxtaposition of Psalm 8, isn't it? The vast and the small. It is this sovereignty over the skies, over the small things, over all things, that we now, along with David, look at his majesty. 
And so I wonder, have you ever thought about majesty before? Maybe perhaps, and I know I say this quite often, but it's just true for me. We, 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 we say these terms like sovereignty, and majesty, and grace, and glory, and all of these things. But we ever take a moment and actually sit back and, 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 and ask the question, what is majesty? Perhaps this may be another one of those Christianese words that we just kind of think we know. It seems to me that a borrowed definition works well as majesty is impressive stateliness indeed. So I wonder, how do I think or how do we think of impressive stateliness? The fact that the Lord holds numbers and names the infinite ends of the universe in the palm of his hand. What does that mean? I have a very simple and crude illustration for you this morning. Okay? We can't fathom 31.9 billion years. We can't fathom an infinite universe. And yet David says he has named and numbered all of them. And Luke says he holds it in his hand. So I don't know what 31.9 billion years is. But the Lord's got 31.9 billion and more in the palm of his hand. In the same sense that I hold this little nursery toy in the palm of my hand. And his glory is above it. The Lord is bigger and is sovereign over the universe. And he holds it just as I hold this now. And he cares for it. And he loves it. And he calls it his. In Isaiah 40, the prophet says these words. Who has measured the waters? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in the balance? He simply holds at a minimum 31.96 billion light years in the palm of his hand. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is a defining measure of majesty. This is what majesty looks like. This is what impressive statelihood looks like. And that's only a measure. So I wonder to myself, what is David looking at? Is he only looking at the stars or is he looking at more than that? As he gazes upward, is he only looking upward or is he looking outward? What is he actually looking at? It seems to me that he answers that question fairly early on in the psalm. So the question that I have for us this morning as we engage with David, as he looks upon the majesty of the Lord, is where do we look to find the same majesty? If David's looking there, then perhaps we should possibly look there as well. To look beyond the vastness of the, of the Lord's heavens. We can also see his majesty in the small things. We can see his majesty in the same thing. And we can see his majesty in a Savior. So let's look at Psalm 8. So part of my role as a pastor is to help you read your Bible better. To be good participants with the story. 
to engage in God's story of redemption. And so as good readers, good participants, it serves us well in our study of God's word to understand at least one simple thing. And maybe it's not so simple, but I think you understand the concept. We must understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New and the New Testament and the Old. What do I mean by that? I mean that we have to understand and be good readers, attentive readers, to know and to see and to observe that, hey, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's probably pretty important. Because if Jesus holds that particular set of Scripture in high value, then we probably should as well. For you see, Scripture interprets Scriptures. We know what one Scripture says and means based upon what other Scriptures say and mean. And Psalm 8 is one of those times, and it's, it's quoted a number of times throughout the Bible, but Jesus uses it and quotes it on at least two occasions, and we'll be touching on those briefly, two of those occasions here this morning. But before we get to the first, I want to ask another question. Where, again, was David seeing the majesty of the Lord? And so where do we look to see the majesty of the Lord? I would say to you, and I would make the argument, that David is looking at more than the heavens. Why do I say that? Well, if you look immediately at verse 2, he gives us the answer. He says, Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. So just let's just play out this imagery, right? So we're talking about 31.96 billion years at the speed of light, right? So there's this vast, massive, infinite universe out there that declares the majesty of the Lord. And then he flips that on its head, right? And we have a couple infants in our congregation. There might only be one here today. Another one on the way. But you gaze upon an infant. And what David is saying is that as we look at those little ones, and as we see a baby, we see the majesty of the Lord. In the very same sense, as 31.96 billion light years. It's a small thing. It's a small thing that declares the majesty of the Lord. His majesty is on full display in the smallest and the weakest of creatures, the human infant. So when we compare 31.9 billion years in the vastness of the universe and we look upon these little ones, the majesty and the greatness of the Lord is never more alive. Although we can fully see the vastness of the universe, we can gaze upon the smallness of an infant. The fact that he holds the universe in his hand is the same way in which we hold the baby in ours. Both declare his majesty. Both declare his sovereignty and his wonder and his awe. But David does more than just point out this steep juxtaposition between a massive universe and a small baby, the infinite and the small. He proclaims that the Lord does does not use the vastness of the universe to conquer his enemies. What does he say? What's the purpose of these babies? What's the purpose of the small children? Do you see that there? The purpose that he uses these babies, it's out of the mouths of infants and babies that they do what? They defeat his enemy. They defeat his foe. These children have a purpose. The purpose of these little ones is that he uses the smallest to defeat the largest. 
The enemy often tries to lure us into the idea, right? That it is strength and, and, and might and power and control that rule the day. Isn't this what we hear over and over again? He tempts us with this lure, with this carrot. And he says, you need power. You need control. You have to be in control. Otherwise, who are you? You're irresponsible. You're not worth it. And we quickly bite at that lure like a hungry fish, don't we? He lures us into this idea that strength and might and power are what we truly need. We think that the control is ever important and essential to the safety and health and the flourishing of our lives and the lives of those whom we love. This then manifests itself in fear, in desperation, in desperate fear, fear of the unknown, fear of tomorrow, fear of the big bad world out there, fear of opposing thoughts, philosophies, fear of the unknown, fear of opposite opinions. And as we bite into that lure that we have to control and we have to know and we have to be this type of person, what have we done? We have forgotten that the Lord holds the universe in His hand. And He is in control. And He is sovereign. And He is our God. You see, fear is what drove the leaders of the day when Jesus was walking the earth. It drove them to madness. It drove them to rage. Fear that their life was being uprooted. Fear that their control was being loosened. Fear that their power was being taken away from them. Fear that everything that they've known for years and years and years was somehow now crashing down because of this guy named Jesus. And they were terrified. And they would do anything in their power to to stop it. So if you're able, turn to Matthew 21, verses 12 to 17 with me, please. I have it here, so I'm not going to turn there. But if you would turn there in your Bibles or your app. This is an important part where Jesus quotes Psalm 8. It may seem an odd thing to be using this, you know, in the start of summer. But Matthew 21, 12 to 17 You'll soon recognize the story. Jesus has just entered into the city on a colt, and uh, palm branches have been laid in the street. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, the children crying out in the temple, here's where this comes into play. What were they saying? Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. They were in a rage. They were fearful. And they said, they, they said to him, do you hear what these children implied? Do you hear what these children are saying? These small ones And Jesus said to them, have you never read? And of course they've read. They've read Psalm 8 before. They knew it by heart, just as many of us know it by heart. Have you never read out of the mouths of babies and infants 
and nursing babies you have prepared praise. Psalm 8. And leaving them, he went out of the city in Bethany to lodge there. What is the wonderful thing about Psalm 8? Psalm 8 became true. Psalm 8 was realized on that very day. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, the Lord defeated his enemy. He defeats the avenger. You see, the leaders of the day feared for their way of life and sought to avenge Jesus, to kill him on that very spot and to throw him out. And from a very small thing, from the mouths of children singing, Hosanna to the son of David. The avenger was silenced. They had nothing to say. They couldn't say anything. Not with might, not with power, not with fear, not with a sword, but with the innocent voices of children singing Hosanna to the son of David. He defeats the avenger. We then must look at the same majesty and glory in the smallest of children as they proclaim His praise. This then is our calling as well too, isn't it? To proclaim His praise. To shout and to sing Hosanna to the Son of David. To offer Him worship, to offer His praise. But there's more to this calling than just the praise of His majesty. For David continues to look upon the majesty of the world around him not only at the expanse of the heavens and not only at the smallness of the babies and infants, but he also looks at the sameness. He looks at a sameness. What do I mean by that? Let's continue through the psalm. He tells us what he's doing in verse 3, right? For I asked the question, where is David looking? He looked at the heavens. He looked at babies. What else does he look at? For when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. So he's looking at creation. He's looking at all of this. The stars, the babies, ourselves, all of creation, the beasts of the field, the oxen, the sheep, all of these things. And he says, who am I? Who are we? Here's the reality that I want every person listening here today, whether in this place, online, or sometime in the future, Here's what I want you to truly know. The God who holds the universe in his hands, the God who put together a baby, formed her in her mother's womb, the God who set that expanse and set those bones into just the right place, the God who attends to the naming and the numbering of the infinite, this God knows you. This God knows you. He pays attention to you. He knows and numbers the hairs on your head. The same God who holds 31 billion light years in the palm of his hands. He knows your story. He knows your joys. He knows what this past week was like, for better or for worse. He knows why you cry at night. He knows the struggles of the day. He knows the celebrations of the year. He knows you. And he attends to you. The psalmist goes on and says, not only does he know you and everything about you, 
but he has created you in his image with the reality of being image bearers, there then bears a responsibility. That responsibility is to be just that, an image bearer. To be his hands, to be his feet, to be his care, his love, his compassion, his mercy to all of creation and to all of people. For the Lord does not tarry as he holds the Milky Way galaxy in his hands as he holds it afloat in the universe in the vastness of space, the majesty of the Lord is that he deems it good and right that we have this responsibility as image bearers, that we are a little lower than the heavenly beings, and we've been crowned with glory and honor. No other creature, no other star, no other galaxy, not even GNZ11, really far out there, holds that same title. There are no other creatures in the vastness of the universe that carry the sameness of the Lord's image. We do. The sameness belongs to you and to me, to all of humanity. In the world in which we live in, we are told that to be of value, you must be rich, successful, powerful, in control, famous. And the world teaches us that You're nothing unless you are one of those things, right? As we watch YouTube, as we watch movies, as we read the internet, as we see advertisements, we are nothing unless we are beautiful, according to the world's eyes, rich, powerful. But according to Psalm 8, this is categorically false. God sees you. God knows you. God is the one that provides you worth, value, and import. But the sameness does not stop there. As image bearers, we are to be image bearers, to be like God. To do what God does. And what is, this, what is David saying here? To create. To create art, to create beauty, to create songs, to create careers that give glory to the Lord. To care for this creation, all of it, to care for rock badgers and king salmon and puppies and cows, to care for rivers and oceans, to not see them spoiled, to sustain, to attend to one another, to love, to weep, to to embrace, to sing, to cry, to laugh with one another, attend to creation with responsibility because we are image bearers of the king to attend with others with care and compassion. You see, the Lord knows the hairs on your head because he attends to you and he cares for you, for everybody. And he says, as my image bears, we are to do the same, to attend to others, to care for them, to love them. And this goes well beyond the borders of our street or our church. It goes to all people. This is the sameness of being image bearers to be crowned with glory and honor in ways that no other creature in the universe is crowned with. For this is how God attends to us, right? So we must attend to others. And then David goes on to continue to look at the majesty of the Lord. So it's not only in the heavens and the babies, but in image bearers in the smallness and the sameness. But he also says there's a majesty and a savior. Turn with me again into the second portion of scripture that quotes Psalm 8, and that's Hebrews chapter 2. 
I'll be starting in verse 5 and reading a few verses down from there. So if you have your apps or your Bible open, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Starting in verse 5, it says this, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. Hint, Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Although Psalm 8 is meant for the choir of God's people, specifically for the people of Israel to understand what it means to be truly human, the author of Hebrews says it's more than that. For he says that the ultimate in human beings, the ultimate image bearer, the ultimate smallness, the ultimate one who who casts majesty and declares majesty, that human is God. And that God-man, that God-human, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate in humanity and the greatest love of all is that one would lay down their life for another. And Jesus laid down his life for a rebel, for me, for you. He does not call or conquer the avenger by calling down fire and brimstone from GNZ 11, 31 billion light years away. He doesn't call down the wrath of the vastness of the infinite of the expanse of the universe to bear down on the enemy, to crush him like an ant. No. He does that with smallness. Insaneness. You see, the majesty of the Lord is in the weak and in the humble and the small and the infant. You see, Jesus did not say a word. The one who spoke the vastness of the universe into existence was silent before the slaughter. You see, the magic of the Lord is just that in the weak and the small. Just as Hebrews points out, he was actually the one who became lower than the heavenly beings. The psalm is about Jesus. He broke through the vastness of the infinite and took on flesh. Can you think of 31 billion miles? Jesus broke through that vastness that expanse, and he took on flesh. He became obedient. Obedient to death. Even death on a cross. He is not the sameness of God. He is God. In his smallness, in his flesh, in being God, he is the ultimate image bearer. The second person of the Trinity, friends, In the same way he attends to the universe, he attends to you by taking nails on your behalf, by suffering your death, taking your grave, and conquering it for you. He truly attends to you 
There is no greater majesty than that. There is no greater majesty to look at as when we look at the cross. For it is there where we find the answer to David's question. What is man that you are mindful of him? The answer? Look to an empty tomb. And we see not the heights and the depths and the lengths of the universe, but we see the heights and the depths and the lengths of the love of the Lord your God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is majesty. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks for you indeed are the pinnacle of majesty. You are the one to which our hearts cry out, Abba, Father, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. And so, Lord, send your Spirit to move and stir our hearts to look to you, to look to your majesty of your grace and of your power and your love for us. Wash over us with this majesty and with this grace. It's in the strong name of Jesus. All God's people together said, Amen.